Life Audio. You're listening to Therapy and Theology, and I'm your host, Carly Merclear. This podcast is a space where we explore popular topics and questions related to the convergence of faith, feelings, spiritual formation, and more. My prayer is that through these conversations, we will grow in our awareness of who we are as beloved children of God, learn to acknowledge our needs and emotions with curiosity and compassion, and rediscover the purpose and power of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. As a licensed therapist and ministry leader, I want to give voice to the many questions we face while cultivating a clearer view of how our faith informs our healing journey. I don't have all the answers, but I am committed to going deeper and walking together. So whether you've been to therapy or know exactly what you believe when it comes to theology, I want to invite you to join this journey as we fearlessly name the complexities of our present reality and press into the hope of the gospel story. So are you ready? Let's jump into today's question and begin this journey together. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hello and welcome back to Therapy and Theology. Today we are diving back into our series on sexuality and spiritual formation. And I'm very excited to be joined by my pastor and mentor, Brenton Lehman. He is a discipleship and teaching pastor at my home church, Gospel Community here in Lynchburg, Virginia. We have been collaborating on the intersection of therapy and theology for some time now, and so I'm very excited to be diving back into this important topic today. Now, last week we talked about the foundation of our theology on sexuality. And so today I want to talk about how our foundation guides our formation. The theology of sexuality that we discussed last week's episode sets the stage for practical development, or as we say, formation. How do we intentionally seek to be shaped by the gospel when we are living in a sex-obsessed culture that has lost the depth and divine aspect of human sexuality? So my hope today in this conversation will be to encourage and equip others to follow the way of Jesus with courage, and compassion. Instead of denying or confining our sexuality, we are called to steward it well as a way to relate to others and love one another well. As Pastor Rich Velotis mentions, sexual wholeness is the purposeful integration of our spirituality and sexuality, resulting in deep, satisfying relationships with others that roots out shame, cultivates vulnerability, and leads to healthy bonding. So, Brendan, welcome to the show, 
And I would love to just start by diving into this topic and your initial thoughts on sexual formation as a pastor. Glad, so glad to have this conversation. So when it comes to this idea of creating a sexual ethic or value set around our sexuality, I love how Deborah Kirsch gives us a definition that sexuality is a deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to, and understand that which is other than ourselves. So this is physical, emotional, psychological, right? So I've termed this coin embodied stewardship. And I want us to just start with this passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 19. And maybe this is a hot take, but this passage kind of promotes this idea that we are not our own, our bodies are not our own. And so the passage goes on and on, but it starts, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, even other sin, of every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So I would love to just chat about this passage. I know there's a lot there, but maybe if we could just pick out parts of this that can help us understand what it means to steward our sexuality well. So. This is a beautiful and confrontational passage. It's supposed to be confrontational. I'm thinking about the wild nature of Paul's audience. They're all over the place. He's trying to bring them in from this wild disposition. So there is some like parental, hey, you guys need to calm down. But then there's also in our context, this can feel harsh. But what I'm, I'm seeing here is this relationship between the body and the spirit. And he's trying to frame the two. And in our cultural moment, we would like to think of the body apart from the spirit, mm-hmm. that I don't actually have to have a spiritual outlook on life to have a healthy relationship with my body. But the scriptures are going to say, you really have to integrate the two. You can't think about one without the other. And in a religious context, kind of an overreaction we've had is to think about the spirit apart from the body. Like we can have a healthy understanding of our spirit without thinking about our body. So either way, either extreme leads us into a a problematic place. And so when I think about this, I see we're seeing, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That dignifies the human body more than like any other theological, philosophical, or scientific frame that we can imagine. If the God of the universe is going to see fit to dwell in a human body that that drenches the body with meaning. And it might feel like It's actually like a removal of agency to say that you're not your own. You were bought with a price that feels like transactional, that feels like contractual language. But this indwelling of God in our bodies, like it's going to continue to dignify body, mind and spirit in ways that transcend any cultural language that we can imagine. I think it's so important that in this sense, our bodies are not seen as less than, but actually it's this idea of seeing our bodies as just more than maybe our culture has been acknowledging the body as, oh, it's just, it's just sex or it's just, you know, whatever. Instead, it's like, no, like we're not just bodies, but we're bodies with souls. And, and there's such a deeper meaning to the expression of our sexuality than mere orgasm or mere 
you know, pleasure or fulfillment. And so I think there's such a important aspects to this that actually brings so much empowerment to our sexual ethic rather than saying, oh, like, like a slave master or like a, a the idea that we don't have agency because we do. Yeah, the language you're bought with the price is liberation language. You've been free. Yeah. Uh, and that cost God something, but you've been freed and not enslaved. It's, it's not an enslaving imagination. And I think about, so I, I like to think about the language of the Bible would imagine the story that we live in is our bodies are not, our bodies don't hold a smaller soul within, but the reality is that our bodies inhabit the larger soul without. So, so there's this threshold between the visible and invisible world that Jesus crosses when he takes on a human body. He, he incarnates that which is ultimately real, but not visible when he takes on a human body. So the, the truest thing about reality is not visible. The truest thing about who we are as human beings is that we are a soul that has a body within it. And so that, that, doesn't, that doesn't diminish the value of the body. That increases the value of the body. And so like if we could, if we could recognize that our modern sort of naturalistic frame would have, even in a religious context, like we actually are, are shrinking the soul down to being this, this smaller part within the body, but rather the body is housed within this eternal soul that is made for God. So the body longs, the body's constantly drawn even outside of itself for connection with that, which is other. This is what we're talking about. This is the whole like drive with a sexual desire that, that takes us outside of ourselves, that puts us in this relational relationally longing place. I think that's because we're, what if we could see the world as the truest thing, the most real thing about it, about us is actually not visible. It's the soul, it's the spiritual reality. Then that actually uh, diminishes, but dignifies the physical and, and our bodies as well. I think that's the biblical imagination. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and getting back to that is I think the church in, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, a contrast to our culture. And I talked a lot about this in the last episode has demonized in some ways, right, sexuality, as we've been talking about, and and not integrating it as part of our spiritual formation and how we actually are called to engage in our sexuality in holy ways. And so one of the things that you've created recently is this this model, the way of Jesus. And I, I would love for you to explain this as kind of a tangible way that we can create a, a mindset around our sexual formation when it comes to value alignment, or I, I use the word congruence, right? My my desires and the way I live my life are congruent with what I believe. Because there's a lot of us, right, myself included, where it's like, oh, well, I know what my my values are on sexuality and marriage and, and sex, but yet I have all this, like, there's a lot going on in my body, or there's a lot of temptations, and there's a lot of things that the culture offers me. And so how do we maintain this embodied view of like the beauty of sexuality and the way of Jesus without maybe becoming judgmental on one side or compromising on the other? Yeah, so if you if we could think about the way of Jesus as th through the lens of this sort of metaphor, imagine you're on a long car ride uh, from one end of the country to the other. 
you begin that car ride, it's smooth sailing and it's a sunny day. There's no traffic. It's easy to go in the direction that you're going. So you can think of that as practicing the way of Jesus, embodying his vision for human beings, human bodies, human sexuality. In some cultures and sometimes in some places, it is easy. It's smooth sailing. The, the journey walking out the way of Jesus comes with very little resistance. Then imagine on that journey, the sun starts to set, the rain starts to fall, traffic starts to pick up, and now it's a more risky environment. There's a lot more resistance. You have to be vigilant, aware, make sure you're not hydroplaning or, you know, running into any other cars. And sometimes culture picks up at either either the narrative from within or from without starts to push against the the vision of Jesus for human beings and human bodies, human sexuality. It gets complicated. It's now challenging. And then imagine a car throws up uh, from in front of you like a little rock or something and hits your windshield and you're already anxious, you're already tense. And then this shocks you and you kind of jerk the wheel a little bit and you start to lean into the car next to you. And what you want to do then is sometimes overcorrect and you end up careening off the road. So when when a culture is no longer a fan of and the expression of Jesus, his way of life, his vision for human sexuality, the, this imagination the Bible has for human bodies, when a culture is no longer cool with that, then the tendency is, as we experience that pushback or crisis, maybe it's not the culture without, maybe again, it is a crisis from within. What I believe about Jesus's vision for human sexuality is no longer what I feel like I want. So the crisis can come from within or from without. It might, the tendency might be to overcorrect into one of two ditches to marked by fear, driven by fear, become combative and to say, no, we're, we're going to hold the line. We're going to push back against culture or I'm going to wage war against my own desires. I'm going to get disciplined and hyper trolling and combative. I'm going to fight against something or to swerve into the other ditch, which is the way of compromise. Say, so, well, it would be a lot easier to just kind of give in or to maybe change what I think about these issues or to, to say maybe maybe reimagine what Jesus might have meant to make it a little smoother sailing internally so there's less intrapsychic or interpersonal conflict. And both of those are totally understandable. Both of those are a response to a, a genuine and legitimate fear that we might have. But then the way that Jesus might compel us to to kind of, instead of going into becoming combative, to be courageous, and to say, look, we, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. It might cost something. There might be some difficult days ahead. But this is still good news. Like what God has designed human beings to be like, what God has designed human sexuality for is so good. So good. It's not worth compromising or it's not worth fighting against. It's worth having courage to continue to stay the course. And then on the other side, to have compassion for those who feel the pull towards compromise, have compassion for ourselves. Like it's okay that your desires are feeling, that you're feeling afraid, that you're feeling conflicted, either internally or externally. So that's natural. So with compassion and courage, we kind of avoid the ditches of being combated or compromised. And this this comes back to this fun, fundamental vision. Do we believe God's intention for us is good? Do we believe that his vision for human beings and sexuality is good news? If it is, it doesn't mean that it won't require courage and compassion and that there won't be good reason to be afraid but that there is a better way. You don't have to just swerve into one ditch or the other. Yeah, I see this in my work and it, on both sides, right? I see those that have been really wounded by, I think, the the more judgmental or combative mode of functioning when it comes to sexuality and uh, just the, the shame and judgment. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But 
we have, I think that's maybe pushed a lot of people into the compromising state, you know, of, of like, well, you know, I, I don't feel like maybe this is the language. Like, I don't feel like God loves me anymore, or I feel very judged or that he's somehow disappointed in me. So therefore, like, I'm just going to move to this other side. And then what we, I think, recognize in that side is that it, it feels disembodied just in a different way, where we've maybe separated our sexuality from our spirituality. I think there's such a misconception about how the church has maybe handled sexuality and what we're, what we're asking here. And I think what this model does for us is it allows us to embody both our broken state as people, but then also hold to this view that Jesus has for us in our, our sexuality. This compassion and courageousness, like what does that look like for someone who's maybe dealing with this internal or external kind of crisis? Well, I think if, if I'm the person who feels the conflict, like I, I feel the, the tendency to want to kind of overcorrect into one side or the other, like I, I think regardless like listening to that fear, if, if there, well, whatever's coming up, if there's a fear, if there's a longing, if there's like, uh, maybe I'll never truly be accepted in my community again, or feeling there's always the fear that there might always be this tension in my relationship with God or tension in relationship with others or tension within, like to just name that and say that, that let's, let's listen to that fear. Let's listen to that, those longings, because that's going to be a window into a need that Jesus is profoundly committed to meet by his presence and his power, his love, and that he'll satisfy those relational needs. But like we got to, again, the tendency is to when the rock flies up or when there's just tension or pressure all around over correct. And if we can slow down, stop, maybe even to take the metaphor probably too far, like pull over to the side of the road for a minute yeah. and just breathe. Just, just let the rain die down and not make significant decisions about our faith or relationships or sexuality or kind of get doom and gloom about the future when the rain's falling. Like, like maybe let the storm pass. Listen to it. Listen to the fear. I think that requires a tremendous amount of both courage and self-compassion to listen to the story within, listen to the desires within, not to deny them. Because they'll come out one way or another. That's right. And then to also be compassionate about the different parts of us that feel intention. That's, it's so helpful to hear that language. I think, especially from a pastor, because it's, it's something that I think so many people feel like they can't do. Like, mm. like they have to ignore or deny their experience. And I think what the gospel invites us into is to not deny it, but to bring it to God and to, and to watch him transform that, whatever that might look like. And so, as we move into kind of some forming principles, some like actual application for us to kind of talk through, this was taken out of the book, Authentic Human Sexuality. And what I love about these principles is that they can shape the way we steward our sexuality, both social sexuality and erotic sexuality. And maybe they can be guardrails for how do we do this? Like, Okay, we we pulled off to the side of the road. Maybe we're in the midst of this rainstorm, but when it clears up and we have to get going again and we still have a lot of questions, like what can we be doing? So I think a lot of the prescription around our sexual expression and spirituality is just don't do this. Like don't look at porn and don't have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend and 
don't do all these things, but what can we do? I think there's something that we need to be doing to form us. And so let's just talk through these principles and maybe give a little bit more language to what we can be doing and what this looks like to embody uh, a stewardship of sexuality. So number one is covenant commitment. And, and they talk about this as to love and be loved versus contracts and conditions. The desire to love and be loved unconditionally is a God-given human desire. And so I, I, I want to just normalize this for a second. I think there is such a, a difficulty when it comes to feeling maybe bad that we want this or feeling like we can't find this. What does that say about me? But can you speak to specifically covenant commitment and why that's important? So first, uh, the, uh, we, we desperately do need to be, we need to be rescued by a better language. We, yes. I love that yeah. we have these terms and we're going to be able to talk about these as guardrails to keep us from swerving into the ditch because the language is so void of life in both a religious and in a secular context. This the, the beauty and goodness of human sexuality, human bodies, human beings. Like we don't have a language sufficient enough outside, I think, of some of this, this the glossary that we're going to kind of introduce here. So we do, yeah. we need to be rescued by a better or beautiful language. And covenant, covenant is, uh, depending on your theological location and tradition, the word covenant can actually be maybe triggering or can mean something outside of uh, love. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can sound more like control. Uh, it can sound more like fatalism uh, or predetermined to the nth degree. But the idea of covenant is the, fundamentally the idea of future binding. When Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, they say yes, not knowing what lies in store for them. They're going to end up following him to his death, but it's the initial loving response of yes that then binds our future to one another. So as a married person, I have said yes to a woman who is becoming who she's becoming. That is unfolding. My wife is unfolding. Who she was 13 years ago when we were married is in some way still there today, but she's become someone else as well. So the idea of future binding is, oh, it's so beautiful. There's such a security in that and that God has initiated that in ways that human beings can never fully reciprocate. It, there's so much, there's so much safety that these, one of these fundamental elements that we have in the idea of a covenant relationship based on love, especially versus contract. When I, when I do weddings, I always include somewhere in there. There's, there's two different ways to think about relationships and covenantally or contractually. We, I always use that language. And we're, we're very familiar with the contract, but we have almost no category for the covenant. And it's so beautiful. And I think it's, it's so helpful too, in that context to be able to say, okay, you know, within my sexual expression, this is this idea of covenant or commitment to love and be loved. We're talking both from a social sexuality and an erotic sexuality of what does it mean to, to have commitment in our relationship? Right. Because I think oftentimes, especially in hookup culture, we can see how there is no trust. We're, we're sleeping with strangers. Right. And how that actually impacts from a psychological perspective, it actually impacts our attachment. There's hormones that are produced during sex. Right. And so the context, I think, here from a Christian perspective is so key. The reason why I think I have to go back to it's not about 
what, like don't do this or that. It's about why I'm not doing that. What's the purpose behind not maybe sleeping around or engaging in sexual behavior with multiple people? It's because the trust there can be impacted, right? There's no safety there if I don't have a commitment to that person. So in addition to covenant commitment, it kind of moves into this idea of to love and be loved. This covenant commitment also then initiates a need for grace because, hey, we're broken people, right? And what we see in God's covenant with us is that he constantly engages in this idea of, of repair, as I call it in the attachment language of forgiveness, right? We we make mistakes, we break maybe a commitment that we've made, and God moves towards us in forgiveness. And so he he allows us then to maybe reciprocate this in our relationships with others, God to us first, and then us to others. And so let's talk a little bit about race and how this can be an aspect of our sexuality or for the church in general, I think it can be really helpful to acknowledge what forgiveness can do instead of this shaming or blaming, right? That I think we tend to see a lot more in the religious culture. Yeah. You know, the less compassionate we are towards ourselves, the less forgiving we are towards ourselves, the less we'll be able to be towards others. So there's a lot of internal work here. That is, uh, like, to in a marriage context, it's it's much easier for me to be gracious towards my spouse when I'm I'm not holding myself hostage for my own sin and shame when I when I've been forgiven. This is why the, the it starts with the command starts with forgive others as you've been forgiven in Christ Jesus. So there is this like experience. You can't give what you don't possess in this sense. If you right. never. If you're just trapped and locked in shame, it's going to be really difficult to give that to others. But I think about um, the profound opportunity we have in relationships, uh, whether it's after a lot of years of of shame, yeah. of hurt, of hiding, or if it's early on in our development as kids, we have such resources, such rich and profound resources and the good news about Jesus to give and to receive grace for ourselves, for others. And this 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 might be the most transformative uh, element of our Christian story to this conversation. Because what should be happening is, yes, there's light and dark in all of us. That all of us have been shattered in some sense and we're splintered in our desires and longings. And God's going to kind of put those pieces back together. But if we can recognize that all of us to some degree like have offshoots of desire, they're going to be aimed in directions that aren't good for us, that don't, that don't help us. And that puts us on this level footing to to not say like, wait, you you have those longings, you have those desires, you made those decisions, but to say like, let's talk about it, let's get in here. And especially earlier on before they get out of control to say, this is this is the space, this, this is the relational context to talk about this thing. Yeah, I think it creates such a, a place of empathy of embodied empathy is when I can say, yeah, I, I have my own sexual brokenness. It might not be yours, but we can hold so much space for grace in that, that, that the Lord is working on our behalf. And so when I'm accepting that grace for myself, I can then extend it to other people. And I think that can be so powerful in maybe even becoming known, you know, and we'll talk about intimacy in a, in a minute, but this idea of grace just really is, I think, the, the, the linchpin of our our ability to experience fullness in our sexuality here on earth until heaven. Yeah, I think the story of the gospel, the 
the character of God is that he turns his face toward us. Even in our shame, even in our sin, even when we've turned our backs on him, he turns his face toward us and looks at us from the same covenant love that he had from the beginning. And when we, when we are expecting condemnation, but we get grace, that just does something to the human soul, to the human body, the human heart. It melts shame. And if we can encounter God in that way, which many of us have hard time doing because of the people who represent him coming at us with strong judgment, we've been hurt by other Christians and applied or our parents or whoever has formed our God concept, that we begin to just, we, we hold God accountable for the mistakes of those who do things in his name. But if we can see him, his face is turned towards you. It's always turned towards you in love. When you're hiding in shame, when you're doing the thing that you don't, he's always turned towards you in love. He cannot violate that covenant. He will not violate that covenant. When you expect judgment, you get grace. It just it begins to be, it melts the soul. Makes for positive change. And I think that can be helpful for listeners to recognize, even for myself, like when I was able to acknowledge the grace given to me in my sexual brokenness, whatever that might be for everybody, we then can move towards this like, new way this new it's not like oh i messed up i can't ever get back there it's like no like the lord says try again right like come on like i have a better way and so if if you're holding shame right that that is evidence that maybe this grace has not been accepted or received because it's there it's there for each one of us Um, and when as we accept it i think we can then extend it in our relationships with others. And so in addition to this grace, there's something that happens here, right? As we experience grace for ourselves, and then as we extend grace to others, something happens. And that's in this idea of empowerment or empowering to empower others and to be empowered ourselves. And this is this opposite of control. We're not trying to control people. We all have power, right? But it's how we use our power. And so I think the the gospel message is not to, you know, express our sexuality in a way that maybe controls others or maybe is in control of ourselves, but that we become servants, right? The Holy Spirit has empowered us to be the hands and feet of Christ, to share with the world. And so I always ask this question, I think you even asked this this past Sunday, like, how are we using our power, right? Like, sexuality is a power, it's a powerful force, and how are we using that? I don't know if you want to speak a little bit more into that. Well, I think this goes back to where you started embodied stewardship, you know, God has made us fundamentally good. Our bodies are dignified because they are connected to the soul that is eternal, that is made in the image of God. And like we're, we are, we, we, in a religious context, oftentimes we, we do great harm that is the opposite of this, that disempowers people. Yes. Yeah. When we say that like we're fundamentally, like our bodies are bad. And, and a theology of sin has to, include Genesis 1 and 2 as much as Genesis chapter 3, that we are good and there is sin that's corrupted the goodness. Like there is this, there's, they're both are braided together, both are true at the same time. And we do have a difficult time holding that tension theologically, yeah. probably in our modern, especially more conservative religious environments. We have a difficult time holding those tensions together. But we need the language of the Bible like, let's make the Bible great again. If you are good, <laughs> yeah. like you've been made good in the image of God and there's sin that's trying, that's actively waging war against that goodness. But like, this is God. This is God speaking over you. You're, 
your body, your sexuality, all of these things are dignified and made for a purpose yep. to be aimed for your good and for the good of others. And sometimes like in a secular frame, we imagine that like just meeting your secular, your sexual needs is just like if you're hungry, eat. That's it. But, but even the Bible back at the text that we started with says that you're, no, even your, your, your physical appetite for food is about something more than just food. Like that brings dignity and therefore empowers the longings and the desires that we had, but we need to aim them in a direction that leads to our flourishing and the flourishing of others. Yes. I think we've missed that in our culture, right? This idea that our sexuality has the power to communicate emotional closeness and intimacy, not just a feel-good moment, right? There's there's something so much deeper. And so if we can acknowledge our sexuality as a way to empower others and ourselves, it can it can shift the way we we view sexuality in general. So powerful. And so the the final aspect of these four points or guardrails as we've been calling them is intimacy, to know and be known. And this is the opposite of this idea of distancing from one another. And I think we've experienced so much isolation and distancing in our culture. And we we do in so many different ways. But something that I keep going back to, and I say this to my clients often, is like intimacy is not just about body to body. Like it's not just about sex, but it's about knowing and be known in relationship. And this is vital from attachment perspective. This is vital for human bonding and flourishing. And I, I love when we go back to Genesis and we see that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. It's not just talking about their their physical bodies, but this idea of, of vulnerability and knownness. And I, I would love to hear maybe a little bit more about what this looks like. How do we implement this idea of intimacy in our lives? Maybe as singles or as married people, what does this look like to live out intimacy as a embodied part of our sexuality? Well, I, this is terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, there's a reason why this is a part of the narrative before sin came into the world, because sin makes this, the, the sins that have been committed against us, anybody who's experienced rejection, it's a correlative uh, kind of impact. If you experience rejection, you long for connection even more, but you anticipate it even less. You, you, you're now, the, the vigilance goes up, and that is to be alive in the world is to experience rejection. And vulnerability, it's so risky. It's risky to not be vulnerable. It's, it's perhaps more risky to not be vulnerable because then you can just shut off whole parts of yourself. But in a marriage, in a marriage relationship, it requires vulnerability, but it's, it's a forced vulnerability because now you live together. You doesn't live in the same room. You're not necessarily in control anymore of that which you're exposing to your spouse. And this is why Christian marriages are often prayerless marriages because it's hard to pray with somebody you just were ridiculous in front of. It's hard sometimes <laughs> to be authentic in your spirituality when your marriage is on the rocks. I talk to couples about this all the time, that perhaps praying together is the hardest thing in a marriage relationship because prayer, we do have the sense that it's intimate, it's, it's vulnerable, and, and it, we have a hard time giving grace to ourselves that it can't be true that I have a longing for God and a desire to pray and commune with them. And also I can be a bit of a jerk in my relationship with my spouse <laughs> and I need to repent there. And we have the, the dark and light's hard to know, but that is, the, that's fundamentally the nature of this intimacy. It, it, it probably in, in my life, the experience of rejection, I feel the most profoundly 
driving my desire for connection more, but also making me most apprehensive when I sense that it might be possible. I think this is why it's like almost like the one of the most challenging aspects of sexuality because we can dive into relationships and express our sexuality yet not be known at all right like there is such a disembodiment there and so i think there's such a encouragement here from scripture to say like hey like it's not just about it's not just about that it's about being known and 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 being able to not hide. I think you had said it even just a few weeks ago in service, like if you're hiding, you can't be known. And I think this is what shame does to us. And so as we learn to engage in relationships in a different way by experiencing grace and by empowering one another, I think this intimacy grows. It's cultivated in those spaces with these contexts, with these guardrails, where we can start slowly, right? I think it takes time to move towards people in, in safe relationships that builds deeper intimacy. And again, from an attachment perspective, we see this, how it, we don't just like automatically attach to someone. We we build that trust and then that vulnerability increases with that commitment to that relationship. And so I, I encourage those of you that are single too, intimacy can be sitting down with someone and being close, um, whether that be physically or just communicatively telling and communicating like, hey, this is how I'm feeling. That that emotional language allows us to be known in in such a deeper way and that's what our soul desires i think that's the that's the idea of the sexual union it's just this this connection both body and soul and it can be such a beautiful thing in community and also in in marriages yeah i think the beauty of a, a safe relationship that's anchored in covenant love yeah that continues to give grace when there are missteps or even outright sin that then creates this empowered sense of like beauty and goodness that then leads to this intimacy it, i mean these are not th- these are these are not categories we have in a modern especially secular frame right. even in a religious frame we don't we just don't have these categories but th- this is our language if you're a follower of jesus like this is your inheritance this is this is how God has designed you, your marriage, your relationships, your friendships, the church to be. And we are woefully short yes. in ways. And, and we, ha- we have to acknowledge that and grieve that. And uh, I'm thinking specifically of the people who have tried all of these things and failed, not on their own, but have been let down or then maybe put themselves out there in some really meaningful ways, expecting to receive grace and to stay within the safety of a covenant relationship. But either that marriage or that church relationship or that friendship ended and that creates that that that's worthy of grieving that creates a lot of apprehension like yeah you know i've been there i've tried all these things and this is why all of this is it's anchored not just in uh, the fidelity of human beings but of god his faithfulness he's always turning his face towards us he's never leaving us and he's he's making things possible that seem impossible he's constantly bringing things to life that's our narrative just as much as our very real experience, like rejection and hurt, it's also the truest thing about us that we are beloved. Yes. Amen. Well, I think all of these areas of formation can be overwhelming to some extent um, when people are first looking at it and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I have to be known, you know? Um, but as just like maybe some final thoughts, like 
what would you encourage people to kind of maybe even start with? I think of when I look at these, it's kind of they draw it in the book in this kind of figure of like a spiral. And as we move in the direction of commitment and this this grace showing and this empowerment and this intimacy, it grows, it deepens, right? We get we could grow deeper. And so on my end of things, I think I notice myself when I start becoming upset with myself or I start pulling away, distancing myself. These are these are helpful cues for me to be like, uh oh, I need to reconnect with my body. Like I really need to make, maybe move towards a friend in this moment. Uh, maybe I need to talk to someone about how I'm feeling. Maybe I need to go to that friend and say, hey, I, I felt hurt by that, you know. And so in in maybe different ways, what, what would you say would be kind of a, a first step to maybe look at this as like, okay, where do we go from here? Well, I think I would say maybe a good place to start could be listening to your own story. If you've, yeah. if you've never done the exercise of just walking through from your earliest memories to now, your story, the high points, the low points, uh, and, and even sort of the through line of sexuality, that can be, some of us have spent a lot of time avoiding that, ignoring yeah. that, overlooking, but kind of starting with the truth about that which has already formed us. Being honest about that and looking for evidences of God's grace, looking for the places where there have been hurt or even trauma, and doing that with an incredible amount of compassion towards yourself, towards your story, and to almost look at your story through the eyes of God. If you can imagine a loving God who is covenanted towards you, who is gracious, who is empowering you, who already sees the darkest corners of your heart that you'd rather ignore, He's already there and loving you fully in them. What would he be saying to you as you look back on your the movements of your story? And because sometimes we, we can't, well, not sometimes, we cannot love someone else if we just denied the parts of us that we don't like. Uh, but those parts of us are fully loved by Jesus and redeemed and are being redeemed. And so sometimes we, we lock up our future, we bind up our future to uh, the, the, and the things we've severed from our past. So if we can kind of go back through our story, maybe in the safety of a trusted relationship, uh, I recommend a therapist, would be a good idea, <laughs> to process those <laughs> elements of our story to then help us kind of figure out where it, what is going to, what are the tender points in my relationship? What has been my relational history? Yeah. What has been my own understanding of my body? And to let God begin to kind of redeem and reshape those things so that we have not just language for authentic sexuality, but we actually have like practices and behaviors yeah. and we know our own uh, points of strength and weakness. We know what to look out for. Carly, you said that you're just like, I know if I'm pulling away in relationship with well, somebody else might go the other way. Yeah. Yeah. And we're like overcompensating relationship, become codependent. So where, where are my, what are my tendencies? How's that shaped by my story? And can, do I have enough compassion for my own story? To have compassion for others wherever they're at in their story. I think that's what's helpful from the authentic human sexuality text. They talk about being whole really, really helps mm-hmm. uh, in having whole relationships. Being differentiated really helps in forming healthy relationships. Yeah, it starts with our, our own work and then moving into relationships. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I am hoping and praying that this conversation has been encouraging for those listening. So. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Therapy and Theology. If you have a question or topic you would like discussed on a future episode, please feel free to email me or drop it in the comments. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to have each week's episode instantly downloaded to your podcasts and see the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode. To access more content and join my monthly email list for the latest updates and info, visit my website at carlymarkwilliard.com. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project, a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app.